You're listening to Inside Law, a podcast produced by Polsonelli, a national full-service law firm stretching from coast to coast. Hello, and thanks for joining me today. I am Erica Seaborn, Manager of Strategic Philanthropy in the Tax-Exempt Organizations Practice Group at the national law firm Polsonelli PC. And today, we are going to be talking about one of the biggest areas of growth for nonprofit fundraising, planned giving. It is estimated that over the next 25 years, nearly $6 trillion will transfer to charitable organizations through bequests, trusts, and other planned gifts. Because of the unique legal, administrative, and personal aspects of planned gifts, managing the process can be a complicated task for nonprofits and development professionals. I am delighted to be joined today by Jeff Glogauer, an estate planning attorney in Polsonelli's St. Louis, Missouri office to discuss bequest management and strategies for charities. Thanks so much for being here, Jeff. Thank you for having me. So to begin, can you give us a brief description of planned giving? Sure. Planned giving can be summarized as the process of arranging a contribution in the present that will be allocated at a future date. And if that's planned giving, then what is bequest management? Bequest management is generally what happens when you're notified that a donor has provided a gift or bequest to your nonprofit organization in their estate plan. It involves reviewing documents, providing needed information, and monitoring progress. Effective bequest management and administration is all about ensuring your nonprofit receives the amount it is entitled to as quickly as possible. It is important to note that bequests can take many forms and include lifetime gifts, whether through a charitable remainder trust, private foundation, charitable gift annuity or pooled income fund, as well as bequests left to a nonprofit after a donor has passed away. Okay, that's really helpful. So you mentioned bequests left to a nonprofit after a donor passes away. How are those typically made? There are essentially three common ways that a bequest can be made to a nonprofit after a donor has passed away. Under a provision in a donor's last will and testament, under a provision in a donor's revocable trust, and through beneficiary designation. For those maybe who aren't so familiar, can you give us a brief explanation of each of those methods? Absolutely. A last will and testament is a legal document that expresses a donor's intent regarding the distribution of his or her estate plan at death. These assets in a donor's estate are subject to probate, which is a court-supervised process for settling and distributing the estate. The personal representative, sometimes also referred to as an executor, is responsible for administering the probate estate and making the bequests under the will. Typically, the personal representative will not make any bequests until the probate estate administration process is completed. A revocable trust, on the other hand, is often known as a will substitute. If a trust is established, it typically is the main estate planning instrument of the donor. The various tax planning clauses and distributive clauses that might otherwise be contained in the will are now incorporated in the trust. After the donor's death, the trustee will manage and distribute the property as a fiduciary for the beneficiaries. Since a revocable trust is not subject to the probate process, a bequest under a trust can often be made more quickly than under a will. Under a beneficiary designation, 
assets can be distributed without having to go through the probate process pursuant to a written instrument instruction furnished by the donor while living. Examples include funds in a retirement plan, the death proceeds associated with a life insurance policy, or the remaining assets held in a bank or brokerage account. All that is required in the case is for the designated beneficiary to submit a claim to the financial institution or other custodian of the plan or account. Upon receipt of that completed claim, the institution should promptly distribute the assets directly to the beneficiary. Thank you so much for that incredibly helpful explanation. So stepping back for a moment, what types of bequests are made under a will or trust after a donor has died? There are commonly four types of bequests, general bequests, demonstrative bequests, specific bequests, and residuary bequests. A general bequest is a gift of property taken from the general assets of an estate or trust, such as a gift of cash. A demonstrative bequest is one that comes from an explicit source or fund, such as a particular bank or brokerage account. A specific bequest is a gift of specific property that can easily be identified, such as a painting, jewelry, a car, or real estate. And finally, a residuary bequest is a distribution of the amount remaining in the estate or trust after all their expenses, claims, and other distributions have been made. A residuary bequest is typically a percentage or fraction of the remainder. How soon can these bequests be made after a donor passes away? On average, the post-death administration process can take anywhere from 6 to 12 months to complete and for the nonprofit to receive its bequest. But it may be shorter or longer depending on particular circumstances. For example, if a federal estate tax return, also known as a Form 706, is required to be filed, that may significantly prolong the post-death administration process. You mentioned that under a bequest under a will, Oh, sorry. No, you mentioned that a bequest under a will is subject to probate. Could you give us an an overview of the steps involved in the probate process? Of course, but bear in mind that the names of the probate procedures may differ from state to state, as well as the time periods within which certain actions must be taken. That said, the probate process usually begins with a notification that the donor has died in the form of a notice of appointment letters of administration, or letters testamentary. That notification will come from the attorney for the estate, the personal representative, or the court. That notification will ordinarily identify who has been appointed as the personal representative of the probate estate and that a gift has been left to the nonprofit. For example, the Uniform Probate Code, Section 3-705, provides that within 30 days of his or her appointment, the personal representative must inform the heirs and devisees of the probate estate of the appointment. Often, a copy of the donor's will accompanies this notice. And what if it doesn't? If it does not, the the nonprofit should request it, as nearly all states provide that the beneficiaries under the will have a right to receive a copy. Sometimes, the attorney or personal representative can be uncooperative. In that case, the will is a matter of public record, and a copy can be obtained from the local probate court where the probate estate is being administered, which is usually filed in the county of the donor's last residence. 
Okay, after this initial notification, what is the next step in the probate process? In most states, the personal representative is required to file a detailed inventory and appraisement, or inventory and valuation, as it's sometimes called. That lists all property owned by the decedent, including real estate, bank and brokerage accounts, personal property, etc., and places a value on those assets. The time period within which this document must be prepared and filed with the probate court varies from state to state. For example, under the Uniform Probate Code, Section 3-706, it provides that within three months after his or her appointment, the personal representative must prepare an inventory which lists the decedent's property in reasonable detail and its fair market value as of the date of the decedent's death. And the personal representative must provide the inventory to any interested persons, which includes beneficiaries, who request it. What if the personal representative doesn't provide the beneficiary a copy of the inventory and appraisement? Since the probate estate is a matter of public record, the inventory and appraisement may also be obtained from the court where it was filed. And can you talk a little bit about why the inventory and appraisement is important? Sure. It is most relevant for residual residual beneficiary so that they can get a sense of the size of their gift based on the value of the remaining estate. But the inventory and appraisement can also be helpful in the case of a specific bequest. Because it provides a value for the total estate, it will indicate if there are sufficient assets to pay all the specific bequests. If not, the specific bequests are usually reduced proportionately. Are there any other time limits that a beneficiary should be aware of? Something you won't see, but which affects the timing of distributions, is the notice to creditors provided by the personal representative. For example, under the Uniform Probate Code Section 3-801, the personal representative must publish a notice to creditors that bars those creditors' claims unless presented within four months of the first publication of that notice. As a backup to that four-month bar, under Uniform Probate Code Section 3-803, there is a general statute of limitations period of one year for creditors' claims measured from the death of the decedent. Generally, no distributions will be made from the estate before these time periods pass. And so after completing all of these steps, how is the probate administration process actually closed? To close a probate estate, the personal representative typically must file a final accounting and petition for discharge with the court. This petition typically contains statements confirming that the personal representative has fully administered the estate, that all claims, taxes, and expenses of administration have been paid, detailing the compensation paid to the personal representative and professional advisors, such as attorneys, accountants, and other advisors showing the balance of the estate, and presenting a final schedule of distributions. In addition, if the decedent owned real estate in a state or county other than the one in which he or she resided, an ancillary probate will be necessary to arrange the transfer of ownership of the property to those entitled to it and pay taxes and debts due in the other state or county. Jeff, you've explained the post-death administration process under a will, but how does that process differ, if at all, under a trust? 
In a trust, the trustee, rather than the personal representative, will be responsible for administering and distributing the trust assets after the decedent's death. As mentioned, trusts are non-probate instruments, so this will not be a court-supervised process, and the trust instrument will not be part of the public record. If a trust administration is not court-supervised, are there the same formal notifications to the beneficiaries as there are with probate administration? Not necessarily, but in most states, a trustee has a fiduciary's duty to keep the beneficiaries notified about certain aspects of the trust administration. For example, under the Uniform Trust Code, Section 813A, a trustee has a general duty to keep the beneficiary beneficiaries reasonably informed about the administration of the trust and of the material facts necessary for them to protect their interests. Does a trustee ever have an affirmative duty to provide the beneficiaries with information? Yes, in certain circumstances. For example, under Uniform Trust Code Section 813B, a trustee must affirmatively notify the beneficiaries of the trust's existence, of the identity of the grantor or the trust maker, of the right to request a copy of the trust instrument, and of the right to a trustee's report. Similarly, under Uniform Trust Code Section 813C, a trustee must provide a trustee's report to a beneficiary who requests it. What is that trustee's report? Good question. It is generally a report of the trust property, liabilities, receipts, and disbursements, including the source and amount of the trustee's compensation, a listing of the trust assets, and, if feasible, their respective market values. And are there any time limits applicable to a post-death trust administration? Some states have a trustee's notice to creditors that will limit a creditor's claim against a revocable trust. For example, in Missouri, a trustee may publish a trustee's notice to creditors. Any debts not presented to the trustee within six months from the date of that first publication of that notice are barred against the trustee and the trust property. So I've heard of a pour-over will used with a trust. What is that exactly, and how does it impact the post-death administration process we just discussed? Many estate plans utilize what is known as a pour-over will, which is essentially a will that provides that all the property in the decedent's estate will be distributed to the trustee of his or her revocable trust. In those situations, the administration procedures for both wills and trusts, as we discussed, will be applicable. Thank you so much for providing an overview of the post-death administration process. I know a lot of people will find that helpful. Jeff, given your experience, what are some of your recommended strategies for bequest administration? Sure. Just as it is important to respond promptly and professionally when notified of a gift intention, it is similarly important to respond promptly and provide any requested information when notified that a gift has matured. Nonprofits should have at the ready a template letter to send to the attorney, personal representative, or trustee. In addition to expressing gratitude for the gift, it should include the following the nonprofit's legal name and taxpayer ID number, 
a completed IRS Form W-9 and the IRS determination letter, which is the 501c3 letter or tax-exempt letter. The nonprofit may also want to affirmatively request a copy of the underlying instruments, such as the will, trust instrument, etc., if not initially provided. They may also want to request an inventory and appraisement of the estate or trust property, and then also ask for a timeline of the distributions. That just seems like so many moving parts. How does a nonprofit keep track of it all? It is really important to have a system for monitoring progress and reminding the nonprofit of important dates, such as a tickler file system. For example, you don't want to miss an important legal deadline. The idea is to follow up sufficiently so that the gift is received as quickly as possible, but not at inappropriate times or to the point of unwarranted annoyance. I typically recommend opening a new file for each bequest that contains the following information, a copy of the will or trust instrument with any codicils or amendments, copies of all other legal documents and notices received, the inventory and appraisement or other information listing the assets and their values, copies of all accountings, copies of all checks and associated paperwork, and copies of correspondence related to the gift. What level of diligence should be followed by the nonprofit with all of these efforts? The amount of effort and vigilance required for a particular bequest depends on its nature. For example, if it's a specific gift, such as a set amount of cash, the amount of oversight needed may be minor. For the most part, the nonprofit's involvement will be limited to ensuring that the gift is distributed in a timely manner. For a residual gift, on the other hand, the nonprofit will want to pay attention to the source of funds that will be used to pay any administrative expenses, taxes, and fiduciary and legal fees. The nonprofit will also want to look to the governing instrument or state law on how those costs are to be allocated. How are fiduciary and legal fees usually assessed? The governing instrument may spell out how the fiduciary is to be compensated and how legal fees are charged. But if the document is silent, then state law may dictate how those fees are to be charged. Generally, a fiduciary will be entitled to reasonable compensation under, under the circumstances. In that case, it is especially important to know what is customary and, in particular, what is deemed by the court to be reasonable. Some states have specific graduated schedules for determining a fiduciary's compensation and the compensation of an attorney representing the fiduciary. Now, I've heard at the end of the administration process, nonprofits are often asked to sign a receipt, release, and waiver. How are those usually handled? Unless your nonprofit is receiving a specific bequest and you've received confirmation from that fiduciary that it can be filled, you likely shouldn't waive your right to a detailed accounting. It is generally not advisable to sign a receipt or release or indemnification until you have actually received your bequest and reviewed the underlying accounting of the estate or trust. That's really good advice. So in addition to maximizing the gift and minimizing the distribution time, what are some of the other benefits of effective bequest administration? One is incentive and encouragement for your potential donors. 
This is done by recognizing a completed gift and honoring the decedent. Another is valuable exposure to the advisor community. How a nonprofit responds to notice about a bequest is a good indication of their responsiveness and effectiveness of that nonprofit. Also, close relationships with the nonprofits that are named in the estate planning instruments through shared resources, knowledge, and costs. And finally, an opportunity to continue relationships with the next generation of donors. Jeff, I want to thank you so much for providing your insight on bequest management and strategies. I know so many people will find this so helpful. So thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. We want to remind listeners that the choice of a lawyer is an important decision, and it should not be based solely on advertising. The information and discussions in this podcast do not constitute legal advice, and listeners should consult legal counsel regarding their specific subject matter. Thank you for listening to Inside Law, a podcast produced by Polsonelli.